Good morning and welcome to Ursa's podcast series. In this podcast, we get to explore topical economic issues and see how they affect our daily lives here in South Africa. We get to speak to experienced and knowledgeable people in the field. I'm your host, Margot G, and with me today is Professor Alex Vandenhever, the Chair of Social Security at the Bit School of Governance. And we will be talking about how the coronavirus has impacted our health sector. Hello, Professor, and welcome to our podcast. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself? Um, well, I've, I'm an economist, uh, so I've, uh, I've, and I've worked in the fields of health and social security for much of my working life, but originally in the Department of Finance, I worked in the Centre for Health Policy, ran the Finance for Accounting Department of Health, set up the Council for Medical Schemes to regulate health insurance in South Africa, and, um, and since 2011 have been at Wits University in an academic post um, looking at social security, which involves a, a very significant look at healthcare in South Africa. Oh, what a pleasure to have you today. Thank you. And I look forward to hearing your insights into the health sector. So especially after this pandemic of the coronavirus, there has been much economic impact throughout the economy. And um, the health sector is very fundamental pillar here. Could you tell us more about the current state of the health sector based on this and what you consider to be the direct and indirect impacts of the coronavirus? The coronavirus has a, it has a sort of uh, uh, an unfortunate uh, uh, set of impacts. On the one hand, it doesn't, it doesn't harm a lot of people, but then it actually harms a very uh, significant subsector of, subsection of the population you will experience very severe conditions and very, very quickly after being infected. The problem that all of that causes is that if the epidemic um, takes off, you will suddenly have an overwhelming demand for hospital beds and in particular high care and uh, critical care beds um, that in virtually any country in the world will be, uh, they will not be able to accommodate. And for people who cannot access ventilators, which are typically in ICUs, they will die. So it is, uh, so the mortality rate, although relatively small in relation to the total population, is actually a very significant portion of the high risk group. And that everybody has regarded as an unacceptable, it's un an, an unacceptable outcome to leave that group uh, essentially vulnerable to die in the system. Wow. So our options are that we have to prevent the rapid escalation of the disease, even if it runs through society to prevent the health system from being overwhelmed. Yes, and we've already come, taken some of those preventative measures into play. I think South Africa is very efficient in implementing the lockdown and exercising these social distancing measures. How successful do you think it has been so far relative to other countries? Or I think it was introduced at, uh, at an optimal time relative to a lot of other countries. Uh, and I think that it was a necessary intervention. There are alternatives to lockdowns when you're at an early phase of the epidemic, uh, but South Africa didn't have the capability to implement those measures. And that's an, that's an issue for how we manage this epidemic for the remainder of the year. Um, so we've, uh, so the lockdown um, has appeared to have an impact on new infections. But there is a problem with how we're detecting new infections and in that the testing protocol has created a bit of a blind eye to, the, um, to, to community-based outbreaks in the general population. 
because it effectively had a testing protocol that focused on whether or not you were somebody who traveled overseas, you knew somebody who traveled overseas and had contact with them, or knew somebody who was tested positive for the coronavirus. And if you presented at a public hospital with symptoms and said, I think I might have this, test me, they sent you home. Wow. So that is, a, that is a huge problem with the way in which the testing process occurred. So what we're seeing now is we definitely are seeing a downturn in new infections, but based on that testing protocol, which is blind to what might be an outbreak in the general population. So more generalized testing has begun and we will see whether or not it has been successful. The lockdown is going to be very successful on the affluent population in South Africa, who were the importers of the disease. Mm -hmm. The big danger in South Africa is whether the disease gets transmitted from that affluent group into the general population. And um, so all the figures now show that, yes, there's a downturn as expected from the lockdown we bought some time. But what we don't know is whether there's a hidden outbreak in the general population that we will only pick up with the expanded testing regimes. Wow. So this is a, a, an uncertainty. It appears to be working. Our only other indicator of whether or not the outbreak has taken off more generally are inpatient stays in hospitals and the mortality from COVID. So the problem there is they're not publishing the data. Wow. So we are seeing the mortality, but they're not publishing the inpatient data, which is a it will be a lag on the real new infections. Yes. Even if you have a lot of undetected infections, they're going to materialize as inpatient stays for the severe group. And you're going to have high care, uh, ICU high care and general ward activity, hospital activities. And we are seeing a rise in that. And the question is whether we see a drop in that. But we're not seeing it in the published information. And it's difficult to obtain the public sector data, which is going to be very important in telling us about the outbreak in the general population. Just, so out, of interest, just out of interest, how long do you think the lag would be between this new testing and the old testing and being able to see a change in the results? How many weeks, months, days are we looking at? Was well, it difficult to I say? Don't think that, well, yeah, so the, the, I think the problem in South Africa is that they weren't ready with the testing regime. Okay. And therefore, the testing process was based on, a, on tests that would go to a laboratory, which would take between two and four days I to see. produce a result. And that type of lag actually isn't a very good prevention. It's not mm. very good from a prevention perspective, because the reproduction rate of this disease is around about 2.5 every four days. So one person affects wow. roughly 2.5 people every four days. If you don't interrupt that person infecting the 2.5 on average, um, you are you're losing ground. Wow. And the more you interrupt it, you've got to bring it down to a reproduction rate of under one to get the disease to wipe itself out. Mm -hmm. So a testing regime of two to four days is not helpful, um, but it wasn't necessarily critical to the prevention strategy that was being implemented, which was really trying to confirm whether this person who is coming forward who's sick um, is confirmed as a case. Yes. But, so that's, so that's, that's, a, that's a problem. In, in terms of the general ramping up of testing, it's likely they, they, we have a TB testing regime, which gives us a massive potential platform to expand our testing relative to a lot of other countries. We have the gene expert machines, which have recently been purchased. 
and they have been attempting to, to stockpile and obtain large quantities of reagents to go into mass-based testing. When that happens, we will get the tests back much faster, which you need to have within a day. You need them within 12 to 24 hours, and at five minutes would be the mm -hmm. kind of thing. But between 12 to 24 hours, you can have an impact on prevention, and you can work out where the outbreaks are localized. Yeah, I think when you speak about the testing regimes, Germany had a very good system and that I think has helped them very much in terms of the, the spreading of the disease now, or the virus, should I say. Um, and also you've already touched on, you know, one of the sort of divides between the affluent and the less affluent. And I think looking at South Africa as an emerging economy, we also have a lot of complex socioeconomic issues where people have a lot of and health issues such as HIV AIDS and um, the tuberculosis, which you've already mentioned. And we also have quite a divide between the public and the private healthcare system. How would you describe the current infrastructure in, in dealing with these divides that we are faced with? And um, do you think it is coping or, I mean, I know we're delaying the heavy demand as you increase demand, we try to delay it with these procedures, but do you think, you know, how, how do the public and private sectors cope differently given the stresses they're already dealing with? Well, the, there, so there is a difference between the public and private sector in terms of the available critical care beds. Um, okay. in, in total, there are more, more beds in the public sector than there are in the private sector. But when it comes down to critical care beds, the private sector has uh, more than double the number of critical care beds in South Africa than the entire public sector. Oh, wow. That has been a rationing decision of the state. They have whittled down our critical care capability over the last 20 years, which has put us at risk in a number of areas. But it's been something that happens at a sort of, you, you never, it's not part of general policy discussion. And so people have just rationed these largely implicitly unexpected, it hasn't been part of any grand plan. But it's left us with a situation where the state is less prepared for the critical care cases in the private sector. If we have even a mild epidemic, we're going to need to use both the public and private sector beds for public sector patients. So we've, we can't restrict, create a divide between public and private sector beds in this epidemic for this, in this particular case. So the, the public sector will be very, very quickly overwhelmed, very quickly. Uh, but the private sector has more capacity, and, uh, but the patients will have to be distributed across both sectors if it gets to that point. Um, I'm not sure that the, they have come together, they are talking on our joint strategy. I think there's agreement that that's how it would work. In my view, that's how it must work in this particular instance. Uh, so if we get there, I, I hope we don't. I hope we don't get to the point where we need those beds. Yes. Because unfortunately, when you get into ICU, and you're on a ventilator, your probability of survival is very, is very low. It's, it wow. drops to under 50%, no, yeah, under 50% chance of survival. Wow. And um, if we're looking at trying to increase this capacity now, how long would it take? Um, you know, we, we may have waves of this virus coming back. Um, I've, so if we maybe hit another pandemic or again later, um, would we be able to address these things for the next round, structurally? Well, firstly, we've got to deal with the COVID crisis. If we have COVID similar crises in the future, we will have to be better prepared than we were now. 
mm. but what um, because there are alternative strategies to what we've done that are more efficient okay but if we um, if we had to look at the remainder of this year we will face the risk of resurgence all the way through 2020 um, which means we've got to be prepared to keep the epidemic contained on an ongoing basis. That's actually quite a big threat to South Africa economically, as well as in terms of its health strategy. Until mm -hmm. we've wiped it out internationally, we haven't wiped it out. So we've, um, but we can't afford lockdowns. Yes. yes. So a 14, 17, uh, a 21-day lockdown took out 500 billion rand from the South African economy out of GDP this year. We have another 21-day lockdown. It's another. It's a trillion rand altogether. So we, if we had three lockdowns this year, which we could potentially require, if the as the epidemic resurges, um, we will be unable to finance anything. We'll be unable to support people um, uh, uh, to bridge the gap and the shutdown to the economy. We we basically we can't afford lockdowns. Yes. Not on a not to 31st December. We could afford it if it was going to be wiped out in April, but it's not going to be the case. Mm, gosh, this is quite a, quite a scary thought to get one's head around. And I think when we look at it from a broader perspective, as you mentioned, it's very concerning. But then also the people on the ground and being able to cope with this. We've seen a lot of unrest with the health professionals um, in Zimbabwe recently. A lot of people felt unprotected and a lot of you know, these guys are, it takes a long time for them to qualify and be as good as they are. And um, what can we do to also help the staff so that we can manage it from a people's perspective as well as a, a structural perspective going forward? Um, this is, you know, in terms of this prevention, what are some things we could actually do to make, to mitigate the cost? Well, uh, so firstly on the PPP side, the PPE side, the personal protection equipment, that is required okay. for frontline workers is absolutely critical and it's a must-have. You can't, you know, the healthcare workers are a vector for the epidemic themselves. So they've got to be protected just as health workers. They've also got to be prevented from infecting the rest of society because they're right at the forefront. South Africa, when it, um, when the epidemic uh, began in South Africa, a lot of other countries had already shut down their um, exports of PPE equipment to South Africa, and oh. they were hoarding it themselves, which meant that South Africa was suddenly facing a difficulty of accessing the supplies that it had put on order. Now, um, so the solution in these crises is you have to domestically produce these products. So in the case of PPE, as opposed to more sophisticated equipment, South Africa has the capability domestically and for the region to produce all of this, but we shut down our textiles companies and our plastics companies in the lockdown. So those are the companies that could be repurposed in a very short period of time to produce en masse masks, gowns, um, uh, sort of screens, everything that is required. So when we reopen, we basically have to bring that capability to bear on the PPP side. We, we shouldn't have a problem. But the strategy was that people were not prepared for all nuanced strategies. And that's, that's why generalized lockdowns done on the back foot are not a good idea, but they were necessary in this case. But mm. you, going forward, we want to be more prepared. So we have to get domestic production in here to supplement what we might still get as imports. 
but we have to basically mass produce this stuff and it's not just for frontline workers part of social distancing for the remainder of the year and the requirement for uh, basic prevention is everybody's going to have to wear a mask when they're out of the house if they're having to go to any work they're going to have to wear protective clothing they are um, uh, and potentially for much of this year anybody who can is going to be required to work from home that's not a lockdown that keeps businesses going but for people who go to work in any with any employer or in a retail outlet they're going to have to protect customers customers are going to have to be protected from staff staff are going to have to be protected from each other and when they're transported to and from work they're going to have to be protected that means physical protective clothing uh, etc is not just for frontline staff it's going to be for everybody well i think this preparation is, is fundamental and i think we're going to have to accept some quite different new norms i really like what you're saying about the you know being prepared going forward and i hope that we can become more resilient as a south african economy from within and not so dependent on our exports and perhaps even allow us to create these you know encourage these businesses so that they can export into internationally to other countries maybe in sub-saharan africa and build some strength to also help our economy come out of this recession and economic slowdown that we've also had over the past six months so i think we could take some positive learnings from this and, and hopefully make it work. Is there anything else you would like to say to our listeners today? Well, uh, maybe to emphasize one thing, the countries that were better prepared for this mm. epidemic, the ones who experienced the SARS and the MERS outbreaks in Asia, and what they started by doing was um, creating stockpiles of PPE. Uh, in many cases, this kind of epidemic is always going to be respiratory in nature, which means that you um, make sure that you've got stock, stockpiles of the right kind of equipment as well. But the other was that they also worked out what would be their most appropriate strategy um, as it takes all. And that was mass testing and contact tracing with selective lockdowns. So from day one, that's what they began with. But that means if it's a novel virus, as it will invariably be, the most dangerous ones will always be a novel virus. So mm. an animal to human infection, you don't know where it comes from. So you've got to generate a new test. You've got to develop it on the trot. So you can't go through a six month regulatory approval process. It must be done urgently. So one of the things they did was they created the regulatory framework to allow for the immediate development and um, uh, uh, an approval of these tests. So all of this was done right up front. And so they immediately start their intervention. They don't lock down. And with mass testing and contact tracing, when the epidemic is still relatively new, you can contain it, you can get ahead of it. But mm -hmm. when it becomes an uncontrollable outbreak, as you will see, as is the case now in the United States and Italy and the UK, then um, testing and contact tracing is almost not an option at that point. You have to do lockdowns to get to the level at which uh, testing and tracing will work. So this is, I think, the thing that we're going to have to be prepared for. And we all have to have domestic stockpiles of these kinds of things for the, when it happens again, when it's not the coronavirus and some mm. other version of the same thing. Definitely. We need to be prepared. <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor. I really appreciate having the opportunity to hear your insights and we are really grateful for, for shedding light on the issue. 
Thank you also to all of our listeners. And remember, for more updates on our podcast series, please see our website and social media platforms. This is your host, Margot G from the Ursa Podcast Series. Till next time.